Welcome to The Next Great Thing. I'm Andrew Greenstein, CEO of SF AppWorks. AI is becoming a big part of our lives, but will it ever truly understand us and be able to engage with us on a human level? And as AI becomes more and more important to the future of business, will it create a gap between the AI haves and have-nots? My guest today is Michelle Zhou. Michelle is an expert in human-centered artificial intelligence. She spent 15 years working at IBM in research and is the inventor of IBM Watson Personality Insights. She's now the co-founder and CEO of Juji, a company that's building cognitive AI chatbot assistance. And it's all built on a no-code platform. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get to Juji, tell me a little bit about your time working as a researcher at IBM. What did your work focus on there? By training, I'm a computer scientist, so I have been always been working in the area, like you mentioned, human-centered artificial intelligence, also in short, human-centered AI. So it's an interdisciplinary field that intersects artificial intelligence and human-computer interaction. The first big project, which I spent almost 10 years of my time at IBM, is on what are called a real hunter. It's a conversational AI system that allows people to inquire about uh, data. So for example, if you're looking for a house and then you might say, oh, I want to find houses in California in the Santa Clara County using pure natural language. So then the system would reply with the houses that satisfy the criteria. Just like human conversation, users can issue the follow-up inquiries within context. A user might say, so how about those houses just under $1 million? What about those houses built after 1990? Which school districts are these houses in? So this one really enables data scientists, data analysts, who may not know how to write oh, SQL query, database queries, but maybe to quickly wade through large amounts of data and discover insights. So a second project we did, it's related to Watson Personality Insights, which you mentioned earlier, is about using humans' communication text, social media posts like a Twitter, Facebook posts, or even emails or blogs to understand humans' unique characteristics. So for example, oh, their psychological needs, their personality traits, so the idea there is if we can understand people more deeply, then we can help people better. Sure. Fascinating. And of course, we can all think of the use applications with conversational search. Your example was great. I actually had some experience working with the uh, emotion indicators in IBM Watson. My team did a hackathon in 2016. We won the grand prize building an emotion journal Congrats! that used your technology to be able to conduct. Using what are some personality insights, right? Exactly. You know, when I hear the word inventor, I always think of breakthrough, breakthrough moment. Did you have breakthrough moments in either of these two projects where you got it? <laughs> I guess because, as I said, remember the word human-centered AI, right? So once you have a technologies, especially innovative technologies out there, you will be just so surprised, obviously a breakthrough in terms of how users embrace these technologies, how they use it, what their reactions are. And I'll be happy to share more, uh, several examples. Then people will say, oh, really? 
And then you will be also surprised to see people's behavior influenced by such technologies. Hmm. So chatbot technology in some form or another has been around for a long time. I remember talking to those annoying automated phone menus, which is a form of a chatbot. And of course, we all have had experience talking with Siri and other similar technologies. Where's Juji in this evolution? And, and how are you taking that technology and the experience people have with it to the next level? A great question. In short, Juji really advances the state of art in conversational AI, of you can call the chatbot technologies from two aspects. First of all, not only does Gigi power those conversational AI agents or chatbots with the communication skills, Gigi also powers them with advanced human soft skills. So for example, active listening, reading between the lines. So those kind of skills are very much needed if you really want your AI to be your assistant. So just thinking about it, if you're going to hire a junior human assistant, not only do you want this person to have communication skills, but you also want this person to have certain soft skills. How do you even start to codify something like that? Really to democratize the creation of such conversational agents with the human soft skills. When I was my work at IBM, I led a team when we're working on the Real Hunter, a team about 10 people and around the world probably probably 50, 60 people because you have people help you to push out the technologies. You need the professionals, PhDs, AI experts, top-notch programmers. But not every organization and not everyone has that kind of skills. It doesn't mean they shouldn't use AI assistance. So what GG does it is to really push out this no-code platform so other people, which means anyone, everyone, as long as they can use PowerPoint and Excel, they can create their own custom version of AI Assistant. You make it sound easy. And I do want to be careful here because some of my best friends are chatbots. But in general, they're really bad at being human. How are you teaching them cognitive intelligence and soft skills like empathy and humor? And you mentioned modeling after our conversations. Do you test that? Is it a learning model? I'm still trying to understand how we actually can do this. Think about uh, you have a child. So how did you teach your child certain skills? First one, you want your child to observe, right? That's how kids actually learn. And uh, if they learn their mom and dad, their parents, their teachers have that kind of what we call the social emotional intelligence, they will have it. So then the kids will learn from the behavior. Similarly, we gave lots of data to teach computers Basically, computers will observe to do that, right? Number one, this one. Basically, you have the training data, you train the models. Second part, very important. It is uh, continuous learning. Um, the, using it, observe it. If you teach your kids to learn the skill, teach if the kids observe the skills already, but they're not using it in real world, in real practices, they would not be able to sharpen the skills. Similarly, in our case, once you train the computer in that way, you deploy it, you send it out, and then let the computers actually behave in the real world. And you keep learning that, right? Just give you a very simple example, because we want to make our AI assistants very empathetic, right? So let's say if somebody comes to tell the computer to say, you know, I just lost my best friend, or maybe I just lost my dad right, to COVID. And then we want the computers to be able to 
say that, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. So this is kind of, this is observing. But the tricky part of here is the, the observing part of it. Sometimes it's only one point in life, but you have to use it to actually learn the context. So let's say, think about another scenario. It's an interview scenario. They may ask you a question. Hi, Andrew. So what is your worst childhood memory? And you said it is, oh, I lost my best friend or I lost my dad. The computer will actually empathetically respond as well to say, oh, I'm so sorry about your loss. But the one tricky point is here. The computer may not know if you don't have enough data, whether you have answered the question or not. But in this particular context, you answer the question, what's your worst childhood memory, right? So computer shouldn't ask you again. But think about the comparison. Let's say if the computer was asking a totally different question, what's your favorite movie? And you said, oh, I just lost my dad. The computer will say, I'm sorry to hear about your loss. And then repeat the question because the computer knows that you haven't answered the question. So did you see the exact difference from a human point of view? It's so easy. Context there. But for computer, has to learn a lot. You have to really put assistance in the real world to practice. And, you know, I think there is also a moment, I believe the New York Times calls it the spiral of misery when things just totally <laughs> collapse and you realize you cannot get the chatbot to understand you and you want out. And you sometimes scream, representative or stop help. It. Yeah, stop yeah, it. Stop it. <laughs> it's actually interesting because we never say this to humans. If someone wants out of a conversation, we don't say, out, representative, help. Um, but we can say <laughs> that to a chatbot. <laughs> How do you deal with that problem when things just fall apart? Recently, I have taken on the hobby of gardening. Hmm. So this is actually reminds me analogy of how you going to avoid this problem. Number one, you got to have a good stock. If you have your plants starting with very not healthy, right? Not a very good variety. Oh, it doesn't matter how much time you're going to spend on it. That plant will not survive very well. We're not going to blossom. And uh, so that's why you have, to, you have to start with a good stock. In this case, uh, the good genes of the AI. Pick a platform that has already pre-built in high quality AI seeds already, if you will. Second part of it, I always uh, share with my clients, uh, adopting an AI, it's like adopting a child. If you abandon your child, your users will abandon it <laughs> for sure. Again, in gardening, in a gardening analogy, if you abandon your plants, forget it. If you don't weeds, if you don't water, your plant will die for sure, right? It's very important for the organizations, for individuals who adopt chatbots to do that. I think the current the difficulties it is, it's very hard to find a good stock to start with. Second one, it's very difficult to find the good tools to upkeep it, to maintain it. So that's why we have spent a tremendous amount of time just make sure the two things are there. You also advise your clients to always be upfront that customers are talking to a bot, not trick them into thinking they're talking to a human. Why is that so important? It's for two reasons. First, the transparency actually helps you to set your users' expectations right. Because AI is far from perfect, and you want the users to be aware they're talking to a machine, the machines will not going to be understand everything. So not to disappoint them kind of suddenly, right? So this kind of set the right expectations of your users. Second part, 
Fewer people probably know about this. Many scientific studies, including our own, showing that people actually are much more authentic in the interaction with machines than with humans. For one reason, social desirability. Because when they're talking to machines, they feel like machines are like a child and they're not going to judge them. So they're much more open. They're much more authentic and much more to themselves. So they open up. So that's why it's very important if you wanted to get, let's say, elicit a very authentic feedback from your customers, tell them this is an AI assistant. So your customers will be much more open, much more willing to tell you about their true feedback. I've always thought it was a little unfair that only the big companies have the resources and talent to use AI. I know you believe there will be a point where there's a huge AI divide between organizations that can afford these expensive and scarce AI resources and those that can't. Can you tell us more about this divide and what are the consequences if we let this divide grow? Because AI requires so much deep expertise and resources, for example, training data, computational resources, and not every organization can afford that. And recently, we were talking to someone Uh, educational company, they said it is they couldn't even keep their IT people. And uh, because of this, uh, certain organizations will take full advantage of AI and certain organizations just couldn't afford it. One of the biggest reasons the GG works so hard is to democratizing the AI. So everybody can afford it. Everybody can do it. And especially for organizations, uh, we could under really privileged organizations and uh, individuals who don't have that expertise but they can still take advantage of the full AI. The consequences of this divide probably will be even greater than the digital divide. Being in the website development world, I've seen a lot of no-code website platforms over the years, decades even, and they've improved incredibly uh, to the point where it is very accessible to build a website. So when I heard about no-code AI, I was immediately intrigued. Who is your client, ideally, and how would they use it? And Let us know how it is no-code. How does it work? Our clients are the folks who have domain knowledge, right? So actually, it's a very interesting observation from our um, current client base. Normally, computer technology like ours, uh, clients are IT folks. And uh, but in the area of doing a conversational AI, IT people may not be the best person even to construct that conversation, but the domain experts are. So let's say, for example... A recruitment specialist, right? They knew how to interact with candidates. That's their specialty. Customer service managers, they sure know how to interact with customers. And also instruction designers, they knew how to actually interact with students or teachers, right? Coaches. So as you can see, we really empower domain experts who already knew how to interact with their audience, but to augment their time and effort. What are some of the broader applications of cognitive AI technology beyond chatbot assistance that we might see in years to come? Where is this technology headed? So far, we have seen three areas that would be huge. Education, healthcare, and uh, we call talent management. You can also call HR management. So let me give you an example of HR management. When we started the GG, one of our uh, biggest beliefs between my co-founder and I is that uh, everybody is born with a talent. Maybe few people really truly realize what their talent might be. 
So when you want to find a job, when you want to actually select a major, when you go to university, college, right? And then your AI assistant could really help you to do that, understand you better than you understand yourself and help you discover your talents, passions, and interests and help you plot your career path. Similarly, when you are at work, you're unhappy. So your AI assistant might be able to help you diagnose why you are not happy. Maybe it's the culture unfit. Maybe it's unfit between your talents and the roles. So this kind of things, AI can go much deeper. So AI can really play that role to help individuals grow their career, grow their personal life and professional lives. I see some overlap, but you also mentioned education and healthcare. Do you have examples for how it could work in those? Yeah, similar education. So we have been working with a lot of online programs, uh, university and also um, educational companies. So online learning actually is a very lonely, difficult process. And the people sometimes couldn't uh, finish, couldn't complete the program. So I think AI in this case almost can serve as your personal learning companion, I'm speaking your body, right? Can help you figure out uh, where you can get most of the help and encourage you to stay on. And we're human beings. We need a lot of emotional support. But if you couldn't hire your own emotional support consultant, uh, hey, hire an AI assistant. Similarly, in healthcare, one of the biggest problems I read somewhere, it is because uh, Patients couldn't actually stick to their treatment. Again, have a personal care companion can help you actually stick to the routine, help you go through the treatment process, and also serves as an emotional body. I think really can change many people's lives. Absolutely. AI is only as good as the humans who build it, and we humans are inherently flawed creatures. We come with our own experiences and biases. How do you minimize the potential harm of algorithmic bias? Algorithms themselves are not biased because they're just counting the numbers. What could cause biases are training data because algorithms use the data, right? So which means is it is uh, you want to collect as much as data as possible, as diverse types of data as possible. If you only, let's say, collect one type of data from a one type of a people, it's very hard not to be biased because this is how other people interact, right? But if you collect data from a diverse populations in diverse contexts, then you basically cover as many situations as possible to at least alleviate bias. Then do we teach AI to be ethical? How do we think about these issues? How do you think about them? Okay, that's another my favorite topic. AI, remember, it's a machine. We made it, right? If we made AI ethical, AI will be ethical. If we're humans unethical, AI will be unethical. With the great power comes the great responsibility. This is kind of a cliche to say, but actually in this case, it's really true. So like our AI can understand people very well. If irresponsible people use this AI to gain advantage of people because they will know people's strengths and weaknesses, and then that will be really unethical. So right now, I'm trying to work with different organizations to figure out how can we come up with policies, potentially even regulations, because AI will be very powerful, could become very powerful help tool, also could become very powerful hurting tool as well. So 
we need policies in place, regulations in place to actually um, mitigate all those type of risks. I love thinking about the different applications of chatbots as you've described. What is the form factor you see for these? Will we be interacting with voice, chat, text? Will we have robots or other sorts of delivery mechanisms for AI? How do you see it in the future? I believe in a short time, in the next probably a few years, it would be mostly still text-based and voice-based because the technologies are not fully there yet in terms of other modalities, right? But in the long run, maybe within, I would say, 10 years of one, I would say we will say fully what we call it a multimodal multimedia interaction. So which means it is um, uh, like a, maybe they have a form of a robots. We call it embodied agents, but they could have uh, a voice, uh, a different tone of a voice as well. I would say all this one will be in the play once the technologies uh, become more advanced. I have one more question for you. What makes Juji the next great thing? We always want to make Juji the apple of AI. I'm not sure you have ever watched the movie called Her. So in the Her, there's a company called Computer Systems or something like that. We want to be that company to enable literally everyone, anyone who has the control of their own AI assistant who can customize, create, build, manage their own AI assistant as their extension. Michelle, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I don't think anybody in the audience realizes you're actually a chatbot, right? (laughs) You wish. (laughs) Impossible. But in all seriousness, this has been truly fascinating. It's been a pleasure and best of luck with Juji in the future. I can't wait to see where this technology will take us next. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure. The Next Great Thing is hosted by Andrew Greenstein, CEO of SF AppWorks, a software innovation agency that helps organizations and entrepreneurs ideate, design, prototype, and develop websites, mobile apps, and custom software. The podcast is produced by Kristen Sills, with marketing by Leah Roos. For more episodes, search for The Next Great Thing wherever you listen to podcasts, or check us out at sfappworks.com.